welcome. This is the um, podcast with the answers to the first head and neck uh, quiz, so perhaps you can refer back to that. There's a print of it on the Anatopod uh, Facebook site uh, so that you can uh, just review the questions as we go. Um, Each of these has been designed to have a particular anatomical point. Question one is, the parotid fascia is innervated by A, the transverse cervical nerve, B, the great auricular nerve, C, the auriculotemporal nerve, and D, the zygomaticotemporal nerve. Um, The point of that question is, what's the basis really for the difference between sensation of the uh, parotid fascia and parotid pseudomotor or secretomotor innervation. Completely different things. Obviously, one's a somatic sensation to the anterior and uh, or superficial and deep parotid fascial layers, and the other one is the parasympathetic innervation of the parotid. So the transverse cervical or the anterior cervical nerve of the neck, uh, part of the cervical plexus that innervates the skin from the symphysis menti down to the suprasternal notch, so that's not it. The great auricular nerve is correct, that's the C2-3 fibres of the cervical plexus. They also innervate part of the skin over the angle of the ramus of the mandible, but the anterior and posterior or superficial and deep parotid fascial layers are innervated, and that's what Uh, is causing part of the pain, neck pain in parotitis, for example. The auriculotemporal nerve, of course, is different. That's the nerve through which there's transmission of the postganglionic parasympathetic fibres to the parotid gland itself for salivation coming from the otic ganglion. And the zygomaticotemporal nerve's got nothing to do with that. That's the bit running uh, from V2 that jumps across in the orbit to the lacrimal nerve to innervate the lacrimal gland. So the point of the question was to look at what we understood about the cervical plexus and how we understand parasympathetic parotid pseudomotor innovation. Question two, the otic ganglion is a station for A, sensory synapse of the mandibular nerve, B, passage of a motor route for the lateral pterygoid muscle, C, parasympathetic synapse of the lesser petrosal nerve, D, parasympathetic synapse of the greater petrosal nerve. And um, the point about that question was to understand the mixed nature of the parasympathetic ganglia of the head and neck. So they've got sensory roots and motor roots and sympathetic roots and parasympathetic roots. But the only point about these is that they are the point of parasympathetic synapse only. So you can't have sensory synapse of the mandibular nerve uh, that doesn't. It may relay through the um, through the um, otic ganglion, but uh, it doesn't synapse there. Passage of a motor route. A motor route does run through the otic uh, ganglion. It's a bit unusual, but that motor route, which contains the fibres uh, which innervate the or the uh, neural fibres which are innervating the tensor muscles, tensor tympani and tensor palati, um, are part of the motor route of the medial pterygoid muscle. So a little bit of a trick question there. And then obviously correct is the parasympathetic synapse of the lesser petrosal nerve, not the greater petrosal nerve. The greater petrosal nerve's involved in lacrimation. It's going to the pterygopalatine ganglion. 
So again, you might want to review through the one that we had on the podcast that we had on the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck. Uh, question three is a little bit debatable, actually. The alar fascia of the neck, A, extends down to the diaphragm, B, runs in front of the carotid sheath, C, is retropharyngeal, D, finishes at the T3 thoracic vertebra. And the point about that was to understand really the... Um, uh, I think it says, by the way, down to the thoracic vertebra, the uh, insertion of the longus collie muscle... Really, the point of the question was to explain the clinical relevance of the fascia in space infections. Um, the point is that the ala fascia is that fascia that runs between the carotid sheath, so it fuses with those, and it does extend down to the diaphragm. So the point about that is that that is correct. Um, it doesn't run in front of the carotid sheath. It's a fascia that runs between the carotid sheaths. And the alar fascia runs really between the prevertebral fascia posteriorly and the buccopharyngeal fascia. So the retropharyngeal space is actually anterior. It's not posterior the other way. The pictures on this are always a little bit confusing in the head and neck. But the answer is that the alar fascia extends down to the diaphragm. It's not retropharyngeal. And... Um, the fascia that finishes at T3, at the bottom of T3, at the insertion of the longus collie muscle, is the prevertebral fascia. As I think I said in one of the um, podcasts on the prevertebral musculature, that this was the um, fascia that extended to the bottom of T3. This was part of thoracic um, POTS disease or um, tuberculosis, which extended as a prevertebral abscess to the level of the T3. And uh, that was the point of that uh, particular question. Um, I think uh, question four, if we continue. Uh, the cord of tympani, A, separates from the main facial nerve at the internal acoustic meatus. B, exits the skull at the petrotympanic fissure. C, exits the skull at the squamotympanic fissure. D, transmits general visceral afferents. And the point about this particular question was to explain the cellular basis of the brainstem reception and the significance of the chorda tympani. Again, it's a bit of a trick question, a sort of silly question in some ways. It doesn't separate at the internal acoustic meatus. The nervous intermedius, which contains the fibres of the chorda tympani, have separated earlier uh, because they come from different nuclei. Obviously, if the chorda tympani is transmitting taste across with the lingual nerve and sensation to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, then it relays back in the spinal nucleus of the trigeminal for sensation, or it has special taste fibres, which are special visceral afferents that make their way through to the nucleus of the tractus solitarius, or what some people have called the gustatory nucleus in the medulla. So A is incorrect, it doesn't separate from the main uh, facial nerve at the level of the internal acoustic meatus. It goes through there, but it doesn't uh, separate there. Uh, it exits the skull at the petrotympanic fissure, and the squamotympanic fissure is a bad question in some ways, because that's the same thing. So they're both correct. And it transmits, as I've said, general somatic afferents, but also generates or, or, or brings in afferents, which are what we call special visceral afferents. I don't like the term visceral, but the viscous here is that it's part of the branchial musculature. 
Um, so that's about it. Uh, the area, by the way, of the Petro tympanic or squamo tympanic fissure is just behind the bony portion of the external auditory meatus. If you look at a skull, it's a tiny little fissure um, at that uh, particular point, um, just uh, behind the zygomatic arch and just above the takeoff of the styloid process. Question five, the infrahyoid musculature is A, innervated by the hypoglossal nerve, B, innervated in part by the C1 ramus, uh, C, innervated uh, high in its segmentation, and D, innervated by the ansus cervicalis, except for the amohyoid. And the point of that question is obviously to explain the ansus cervicalis and to understand a bit about the infrahyoid musculature. So they're not innervated by the hypoglossal nerve. The hypoglossal nerve is related to the innervation of the infrahyoid musculature, and that's because these develop with the cervical myotomes occipitally. But um, it is innervated in part by the C1 ramus, uh, which is contributing particularly fibres, as we know, to the thyrohyoid and to the um, geniohyoid. So that is actually correct B. It's innervated actually low in its segmentation, and that means in a very large thyroid. That's got practical significance, because if you divide the muscles relatively high up, if it's a very large goiter, and usually you don't have to divide the muscles, but if you do, that, uh, that denervates less of the infrahyoid musculature, uh, and, and so that's valuable. And as I've said, innervated by the answer cervicalis, except for the amohyoid, well, the answer superior root and inferior root, the so-called descendens hypoglossi and descendens cervicalis, respectively, they form a little loop on the front of the carotid sheath and they innervate all of the um, infrahyoid muscles. And that is the um, uh, obviously the uh, omohyoid, the sternohyoid, the sternothyroid, and as I've mentioned before, the two others, uh, which are the thyrohyoid and the geniohyoid, innervated by C1. Question six, the external laryngeal nerve, A, is a, a direct branch of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. B, innervates the cricothyroid muscle and the thyropharyngeus. C, has no relationship to the superior thyroid artery. And D, perforates the thyrohyoid membrane with the superior laryngeal vessels. So what we're asking in this question is really, what is the significance of the nerve uh, and its relationships the only answer that's correct there is innervating the cricothyroid muscle and the thyropharyngeus, which is the upper part of the inferior constrictor. It's not a direct branch of the recurrent laryngeal nerve because it comes from the superior laryngeal nerve, which is a branch of the, uh, of the vagus. And so the superior divides, not surprisingly, into an external and an internal laryngeal nerve. Uh, it has a, quite a significant relationship the external laryngeal nerve to the superior thyroid artery. There's a number of classifications. I think we went through those in one of the uh, podcasts. There's the so-called Cernia classification. It's relationship specifically there to the superior thyroid artery, whether it's above it, whether it splits around it, whether it's below it and even perforating part of the inferior constrictor. And the way that that superior thyroid uh, bundle or pedicle is actually ligated then influences the potential of injuring the external laryngeal nerve. 
And so that's of relevance, particularly in denervating the cricothyroid, which is tensing up the vocal cords uh, and leading to the ability to produce high-pitched uh, sounds. Um, obviously, perforating the thyrohyoid membrane with the superior laryngeal vessels is the internal laryngeal nerve, and that's largely sensory uh, to the area of the laryngeal vestibule above the cords. So that these are completely different nerves, and so one has to read the question fairly carefully from that point of view. Question seven. The non-recurrent, we're back to a bit on thyroids and these nerves, the non-recurrent inferior laryngeal nerve. What are they talking about there? They mean the non-recurrent nerve. It used to be called the non-recurrent recurrent laryngeal nerve. That seems a silly term. So the term is now where it becomes intralaryngeal. It's called the inferior laryngeal nerve in order to remove that kind of discrepancy. A may be bilateral. B is associated with a distal uh, right subclavian vessel takeoff, distal to the left subclavian artery. C runs in the tracheoesophageal groove, and D runs a retroesophageal course. So the point about that is explaining really the anatomical and embryological basis of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. I think it's also something that we've considered. So it's not bilateral, so A is incorrect. Um, it is associated with a distal right subclavian vessel takeoff. Um, distal to the left subclavian. What happens there is that there's an anomaly between the fourth aortic arch and the sixth aortic arch, the normal fifth one regressing. So where the pulmonary artery takeoff is near the ligamentum arteriosum um, is this abnormal right subclavian artery which takes off distally on the aortic arch uh, or just beyond it really from the left subclavian artery. And in order to get to the right arm, it takes a retroesophageal course. So both B and D are correct there. It can't run the nerve in the tracheoesophageal groove because it's coming directly across from the right vagus into the tracheoesophageal groove. You can say that it then ultimately does run into the tracheoesophageal groove, but not up it in the standard fashion. So you could argue about C being correct or not. Certainly B and D are correct. And the recurrent laryngeal nerve, if it's demonstrated on that side to um, uh, be associated with, let's say, CT angiography, which shows this so-called arteria lusoria, uh, then um, you'll know that there's a likelihood if the patient's having a thyroidectomy, they may have a non-recurrent inferior laryngeal nerve. It doesn't happen on the left side unless you've got a situs inversus. Question 8, the 11th nerve or the accessory nerve. A has a cranial segment which supports the, the vagus and provides pharyngeal and palatal innervation. B has spinal segments which arise below the medulla. C runs between scalenus anterior and scalenus medius and D exits the skull via the foramen magnum. This is really a question asking you if you understand the anatomy of the spinal and cranial accessory nerves, I don't quite understand why the cranial and spinal are put together because the cranial segment, which comes away from the nucleus ambiguous as a series of rootlets from the medulla, has the job, as in uh, A, uh, to support the vagus and provide pharyngeal and palatal innovation. That is absolutely correct. Uh, the accessory nerve has spinal segments which arise below the medulla, that is correct, there in the first six cervical segments, so that's also correct, A and B. 
runs between scalenus anterior and medius. That's not correct, obviously. We're talking there about the brachial plexus and the roots of that. And exits the skull via the frame and magnum. Well, it goes back up into the skull to join the cranial segment and then exits out through the jugular foramen uh, with the glossopharyngeal nerve and the vagus nerve. So that's how it connects to the vagus nerve. So exiting is not correct. Question nine, the accessory phrenic nerve. I've got to remember what we're talking about here. What we're asking, the question is explain the significance of the accessory phrenic nerve and its anatomy. That's what this question is about. A, arises from the upper trunk of the brachial plexus. B, may pass in front of the subclavian vein. C, cannot be injured in a brachial plexus injury. And D, is found in about less than 10% of dissections. Um, generally, the point about it is that it arises usually from the nerve to subclavius, which is C5, 6. These are from the rootlets of the brachial plexus. So generally it doesn't arise from the upper trunk. So we want to take the spirit of the question. It could arise from that, but that's generally not the case. It can often pass even not only in front of the subclavian vein, but through it, it can be injured during a percutaneous subclavian cannulation. It can be injured in a brachial plexus injury because if you've got rootlets that are pulled off from the spinal cord producing meningocele,s that could actually injure the nerve to subclavius and if that had an accessory phrenic nerve you could have diaphragmatic problems with a brachial plexus injury. It would be an anatomic anomaly and from a study done by Marius Lucas who's a very good anatomist from Grenada um, one uh, he found, I think, that it in an 80 cadaver study that it was present in about half the dissections, so it's a bit more than that. It is of some uh, particular relevance. Question 10, the cervical sympathetic. Uh, here the question we're asking is to explain really the outline of the sympathetic nervous system in the head and neck, and one needs to go back to that to consider that. A has cells that line the posterior column of the spinal cord, well, they don't. The posterior column is sensory, the anterior is motor, and so they lie in the intermediolateral cell column. Uh, B is derived from the thoracolumbar outflow. That's absolutely correct. So the cells are lying in the anterolateral, uh, uh, or uh, pardon me, the uh, intermediolateral uh, cell column uh, at thoracolumbar outflow between about T1 and L2. C, synapses in the uh, viscera as terminal ganglia. Generally, that's the behaviour or structure of the parasympathetic ganglia, long preganglionic fibres and then synapsing in terminal ganglia, often in the substance of a viscous. And D, links to the preaortic ganglia via splanchnic nerves. Uh, that is true, the thoracic component actually of that, not really the cervical component, um, so it's true for thoracics, but not cervicals. Uh, those are the long, greater, lesser, and least splanchnic nerves, which synapse in the preaortic and aorticorenal ganglia. So it's not really the cervical sympathetic, which is the start of that question. Question 11, the pupillary reflex. And here we're asking, really, if we understand the pupillary reflex and also if we understand the ciliary ganglion, quite separate things. But A is afferent to the pretectal nucleus. Uh, well, the afferents are in the pretectal nucleus, so that's correct. It goes into the midbrain uh, bilaterally there. Disappears 
on the efferent limb of the contralateral side of a third nerve palsy. In other words, what we're saying there, that's a rather convoluted sentence, but it's saying that the consensual reflex of a third nerve palsy uh, doesn't exist. And that's not true. Uh, the consensual reflex does exist. It's the direct reflex that is then lost um, because you don't have the third nerve on that particular side, but you have it on the contralateral side. Has only C ipsilateral connections to the EW or Edinger Westphal nucleus. Well, the whole point is that it's got bilateral connections to the Edinger Westphal nucleus so that there's both a direct and a consensual reflex. And D dilates uh, or, rel pardon me, relies on the ciliary ganglion for pupillary dilatation. Well, the ciliary ganglion is about really parasympathetic synapsing for pupilloconstriction. So, uh, that's uh, completely the reverse. Question 12, the pterygopalatine fossa. Uh, the whole point of that question is to understand really the boundaries of the fossa. One thinks of it really as a sort of corridor, as I think I've mentioned, with entry and exit uh, rooms. It A, connects to the pterygomaxillary fissure, so that's absolutely correct because that runs the side between the back of the maxillary tuberosity and the lateral pterygoid plate. That's how the maxillary artery gets into the pterygopalatine fossa, how the maxillary veins come out. B uh, is not connected to the palatine bone. Well, in fact, the pterygopalatine fossa is connected to the palatine, maxillary, and uh, maxilla and sphenoid, but its job is to connect through the nose, really through the sphenopalatine foramen, so that's incorrect. C joins the pharynx via the palato-vaginal canal. You can have more than one answer that's correct here, and that is correct, so that the little artery and the little nerve run back through the palato-vaginal canal to supply the pharynx. And D is the origin of the middle and anterior superior alveolar nerves. Generally not correct. Usually in the pterygopalatine fossa, the origin of the posterior superior alveolar nerves once it leaves that fossa, it becomes the infraorbital nerve or artery, and then, in fact, uh, respectively, and then it becomes the anterior and middle superior alveolar, which sometimes can come off a main or common trunk, but usually not from the pterygopalatine fossa. Question 13. A cerebellopontine tumour can be associated with... The point of this is really to understand the anatomy the different levels of the facial nerve, but A, um, an absence of lacrimation on the affected side. And the answer to that is correct because it's hit at the area just before the greater petrosal nerve comes out. B, reduced salivation. That is correct too. One may not notice that there may be um, uh, reduced um, salivation because the other salivary glands are uh, particularly present. But uh, it's a possibility here the quarter tympani is associated um, uh, with problems in the submandibular gland and the uh, uh, sublingual glands. You may not notice reduced salivation in a cerebellopontine angle tumour because the other parotid glands, the other submandibular glands are all going okay. C, a supranuclear seventh nerve palsy. Well, that's not correct. We want a lower motor neurone seventh there, not a supranuclear palsy. And D, no disruption of taste. Well, there should be disruption of taste because of the effect of the quarter tympani. So if we understand the levels of the facial nerve as it comes out from the pontine nucleus out into the um, 
really uh, through into the middle ear and then out through after the geniculate ganglion into the stylomastoid foramen. As we trace it up, we have a lower motor neuron seventh plus hyperacusis as we get into the middle ear plus a loss of taste in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, which would be noticed, maybe not a reduction of salivation, maybe not a slight reduction of sensation in the external uh, ear near the external auditory meatus. And then as we go further, the greater petrosal nerve is picked off, so we've got a dry eye and loss of lacrimation. And that's placing us up at the cerebellopontine angle. Um, so that explains that. Question 14, we want to understand the glossopharyngeal nerve explaining the anatomy of that. A has no motor root. Well, that's not correct. There is one motor root there to the stylopharyngeus, and that's because this is the third pharyngeal arch, and uh, that's the nerve and muscle of the third pharyngeal arch. B causes sympathetic fibres, or carries, pardon me, sympathetic fibres to the otic ganglion, um, and, uh, well, that is true. Uh, sympathetic fibres can run along with the glossopharyngeal nerve to the otic ganglion. They're not synapsing there, but it's part of the complexity of the otic ganglion, as we mentioned before. C forms a pharyngeal plexus on the inferior constrictor. Well, it's actually on the substance of the middle constrictor, so that's a bit of a trick question, and that's false. And D has a carotid sinus branch. Well, that's certainly true, the carotid sinus branch is bringing nerve fibres, which are really general visceral afferents, from the uh, carotid sinus. Um, you could argue about carry sympathetic fibres to the otic ganglion if the basis of the question was about what synapses in the otic ganglion, well, that's parasympathetics only. But I think actually B is correct. And then question 15, the trochlear nerve, the fourth cranial nerve, the point is to understand really the anatomy here, uh, to um, appreciate that. A um, uh, lies or emerges, it says here, above the tentorium cerebelli. Uh, that is false. It's actually below the tentorium. It winds around the crus of the uh, midbrain, uh, above the superior cerebellar artery and below the posterior cerebral artery, so it's just beneath the free edge of the tentorium cerebelli, can be involved in conditions of raised intracranial pressure. B is lateral to the third nerve in the superior orbital fissure. We have to remember this, um, and uh, it's lazy French tarts sit naked in anticipation kind of thing from lateral to medial. The superorbital fissure just bringing in things from the middle cranial fossa to the orbit. So it is lateral. Uh, the lacrimal and frontal nerve and the trochlear nerve are all lateral. They're extraconal uh, to the super and inferior divisions of the third nerve. Um, C enters the orbit extraconally outside the cone of the muscles of the recti. Uh, that is actually correct. And D uh, controls an extraocular muscle which depresses the eye more purely in extortion. And again, it's a trick question, more purely in intortion. And if we remember the uh, attachment of these particular muscles, the obliques, the superior and inferior oblique, attaching behind the coronal equator of the eye, that means that they function more purely for their functions, pulling the eye up or down, if the eye is in intortion. The recti, uh, because of the orbital axis, 
also are irregular and they have a greater pure function, superior, inferior, middle and lateral rectus in extorsion. And so if we remember also the muscles that function more purely in pulling up the eye and then the superior rectus and the inferior oblique and pulling down or depressing the eye, the inferior rectus and the superior oblique. So this is actually depressing the eye more purely in intorsion. Part of the reason the question was to divine how we remember the function of these sort of um, uh, extraocular muscles. So that's the end of uh, the answers. We'll have a separate uh, quiz later on uh, for the head and neck. And the next podcast, I think, will be on the uh, arterial circulation of the head and neck. Thanks. <laughs>